The works. Love it. And isn't this beautiful here? We were here yesterday. It's just it's looking great. I love it. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, especially those of you who are joining us for the first time. Hope you have a good time. Um, whoa, here we are. There is like an echo. I don't know. Is, is this a little better? I think I'm in a little better space. Good. So we are celebrating Advent. Advent means arrival or coming. And so it's four weeks leading up to Christmas that Christians and even the culture at large uh, get into this festive season, right? This is a festive season. I, I love New York at, at this time, right? There are lights everywhere, there are Christmas trees, people are skating in Rockefeller Park, you know. It's that you got mail vibe, right? It's nice. I mean, I'm dating myself now. It's like, for those of you who probably, many of you don't even know that movie at this point. So old. Uh, anyway, it's a lovely season. Lights, gifts, Santa. I like them. But... Those are not the real reason that Christians celebrate Advent. Obviously, we celebrate Advent because of coming of Christ. So I'd like to talk today about the real reason why we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Because it just seems like it's not always understood right. Uh, there are layers of reasons and, and design, divine design behind the coming of Jesus, but... The one most familiar to you, I bet, will be what is called penal... Oh, sorry, I've gone a little too far. So, the, the reason why we celebrate Jesus is from this verse, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Familiar with stuff like this, right? And there have been many, many theories proposed about just how Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Many theories, but the one familiar to you, and I'm back on track, is called the penal substitutionary atonement theory. How many of you have heard of this theory? It's a mouthful, right? It's theologians, you know? They come up with this stuff. It's uh, most associated with Saint Anselm of 12th century. And I'm sure you are familiar with the content of this theory. It goes like this. We are sinners. We sinned so badly that by justice, God demands justice. By, by justice, God is required to send us all to hell and destroy us all because we are such grave sinners. But Jesus took the penalty in our place on the cross. So God's wrath is now satisfied. Justice requirements are now satisfied. So we are good with God. Now we can go to heaven. You familiar with this? Right? How many are familiar with this theory? I mean, this is basically, I mean, you heard of like four spiritual laws. People think of this as basically, you accept this, you're a Christian. This is the gospel. Everybody knows this theory, right? 
You just don't know the, the title or the label for it, which is penal substitutionary atonement theory. That's what this is, okay? <laughs> now you know. Um, and people think accepting this theory is what makes you Christian. And I'm here to tell you today, that is not true. Blow your mind, right? It is not true. I cannot emphasize this enough. It's just a theory. It's called a theory. It's not the gospel. It's a theory. You cannot find any passage in the Bible that where Jesus talks about the cross in this way. You know, it's not out of the Bible. In fact, for the first thousand years of Christian history, people didn't believe this. Christians believed in another theory for how Jesus takes away the sin of the world. This is not how the Christians understood the gospel. Ransom theory or the Christus Victor theory is what people believed. Okay? And, and that theory claimed that humanity was under the captivity of Satan. But Jesus triumphed over Satan by either being a ransom or tricking Satan by killing innocent Christ or triumphing over Satan by some mechanism. There were lots of sub-theories of this. Uh, Jesus bound the strong man. Uh, it's from Mark chapter 1. No one, Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So based off of that passage, Christians believed that Satan was this strong man and Jesus bound the strong man through the cross. And so now we, we were Satan's goods and we were plundered and we were set free. And so in that version, um, Jesus freed us all by triumphing over Satan. And pretty much every Christian believed this theory for the first thousand years and accepted it as the gospel. And to believe that theory is what made you Christian. Just like people today think believing in penal substitution theory is what makes you Christian. But back then, questions came up. It just kind of bubbled up over time. I mean, isn't God above Satan? Why does God have to go through all this trouble? Couldn't God just tell Satan? Because Satan's under God's, you know, power. Just tell Satan to let people go. Why wouldn't God, why would God have to go through all this trouble? So by the medieval times, God replaced Satan in this model. A small substitution, a small change, but with profound implications, right? So God became the one that had to be placated or paid off or persuaded or something to let us go. Now, this was well received in the medieval culture because they were all obsessed with guilt and shame and, and they were very familiar with the, a justice system where relatives of the criminal could pay the price. You know how, you know, like like even in Asia, like someone commits a crime, they kill your whole family because by association you're all guilty. You know, that kind of thing, right? That was all over the world. It was, everybody believed it. It was just the way it is. Justice demanded relatives also were guilty. And so, 
people accepted this as a theory. Uh, and then by now, everybody has accepted it as if it's the gospel. But of course, it's just a theory and it has problems, huge problems in fact. First off, in this theory, God becomes our enemy, right? You can argue that justice demands it or whatnot, but the fact remains that God is the one bringing calamity to all of us forever and ever, right? God is the one who's going to put us to hell forever. That's very threatening. It's a catastrophe to all of us. Uh, whatever we deserve or not, it's very threatening. So then Jesus is now put in the position of having to rescue us all from God. Right? Do you see how absurd this is? Jesus has to rescue us from God? How does that work? It's really weird because at least the Christus Victor theory had the enemy right. Satan is the enemy. Satan is the one that's bringing harm to us, catastrophe to us, keep us in sin and misery. At least that part is right. I want us all to remember this. If there's one thing you want to take away from this, take this. God is always our friend. God is never your enemy. Can you get that? Can you repeat this after me? God is our friend. Amen. God is our friend. Always, always, always. Never our enemy. Got it? At least you think in church we'll get this right of all places. This was an insight from our very own Mike Eller. He has an MDiv. So yay, Mike. So glad you're with us. Anyway, on the practical level, I found this so frustrating as a pastor. Because people get afraid of God in unhealthy ways because of this theory. Like church became uncomfortable for many people. They feel like they have to be all clean before coming before God because you just are like afraid of God. Do you remember in Genesis 3 how Adam and Eve hide from God? It's not God who withdraws from humanity out of disgust or anger, is it? It's people who withdraw from God and hide from God out of this imagined fear that God is somehow threatening and unsafe and dangerous. And ever since, we've just been doing the same thing. This is terribly insulting to God. Just think about this. God is painted, painted as this rageaholic, right? Can't control the anger and emotion. Somehow, God has to pour out the wrath on all of humanity forever and ever and ever. I mean, whatever sin we committed, does that really like warrant that kind of punishment? But whatever the reason... God is, has to beat someone up to death. God was going to beat all of us up to death forever and ever. But then our oldest brother, Jesus, stepped up and got beaten up to death instead. 
So now, God as the Father is somehow satisfied because God got to be someone up to death. And so God's okay now. So we are okay with God. Now we are all good. Why would anyone, why would you want to be close to anyone like that? Right? I mean, a being like that is something that you wouldn't want anything to do with. This is terribly insulting to God. Not glorifying at all. Like the Presbyterians say, human beings' first purpose is to glorify God. How is this glorifying God? It's blasphemous. Right? Sinners in the hands of angry God. Have you ever heard of this? This is supposedly the most famous sermon ever preached in America by Jonathan Edwards. It's, uh, he, he preached that God dangles all of humanity over the eternal fires of hell. And just at, at the slightest, just slightest wrong move, God is just ready to drop us all. And just a twitch and we would all be suffering eternal torment forever and ever. So God is doing this to us. What a threatening picture of God, right? Just absolutely terrifying. God is the enemy of all mankind in this theory. Whether we deserve it or not, God is bringing harm. How can that be a good news? How can that be a, a good thing for humanity? It's not only blasphemous to God, it caused untold amount of harm. You know, massacres were committed because of fear and panic that we have to get all this right. Because if we are off by just a little bit, we're going to get dropped. And so you have to get it exactly right. Everybody got so terrified of God. Christians did horrible things. Did you know that massacres were committed in Christian Europe over all kinds of small disputes over theory or doctrine? Like whether it's okay to be sprinkled in baptism or you have to be immersed. Basically, it's about the amount of water, right? Is like 10 milliliter enough or is 10 liters enough? You know, where is the right amount of water? Tens of thousands of people would get killed over disputes like this. Can you imagine? In the name of Jesus, the followers of Jesus would do such things? But of course, if you were terrified and in a panic over, like if we get it just wrong, we're going to be like, you know, such panic can lead to horrible, violent, crazy behavior, right? It just causes all kinds of problems. And furthermore, how is any of this justice anyway, right? How does this satisfy requirements of justice? I, I, I mean, back in the medieval days, yes, people thought that, that the brother of the murderer can get executed, and that's justice? Like, no modern criminal system would accept this as justice. No victim's family would accept it as justice. If the criminal goes free, the brother dies <laughs> and gets executed. That, I don't think any judge would... Like, we have a law professor here. John, 
would any modern justice system be okay with something like that? Uh, yes, exactly. I would hope not. I would, I would hope no decent person would go with this, right? I mean, some parts of the world today, small parts, still accept that, but not here. No decent person would think this is what justice demands, and justice is satisfied now because someone else than the guilty party took the punishment. That's not justice. In fact, the fact that it is not justice is what makes cross, the cross so special. But that's another sermon. But anyway, um, yet this problematic theory still continues to dominate everybody's thinking today. And in practical ways, even if we are not like committing massacres, in, in, it just causes many, many problematic practical issues. So for most people today, Jesus became like this magic reset button. You know what I mean? Jesus became this, this magical thinking thing where if you mess up, commit sin or whatever, you can like say, Jesus paid my price, God I'm sorry. And you can press this button and presto, you're all good again. Do you know what I mean? Right? Right? I mean, all Christians know this gimmick. <laughs> have you, I have done this a number of times. Have you done this? Yes? Right? Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm so sorry. I yelled or I did this or that. And now I press the button. I'm good. You know, I'm all good now with God. You know. Magic reset button. But who gets to press that button? And how does that work? And Christians say, well, those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and, and, and you accept the cross, and you have to be sorry, and then you can press that button, right? But is that really how that works? I mean, how about all those like, abusive pastors and priests who like, abuse kids for decades and decades and decades, forever and ever? I mean, they believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. I mean, some of them may not, but many of them really genuinely do. They have done this thing. They have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior into their heart. They have said those magic words that we all believe are magic words. And, and, and they have really believed in Jesus. And they were going for it so much that they have become priests or pastors. But for whatever reason, they, have, they cause all this harm to innocent kids. So then the argument goes, well, you have to be really sorry. You can't just say the words, you have to be really sorry. Well, many of these priests, you know, they beat themselves up, right? They are so sorry that they do penance. They really are sorry. And yet, they can't help themselves but keep doing it. Addictions are like that. You know what I mean? Just because you don't want to do it anymore, addictions don't let you. Right? So then the argument moves on to if you are really sorry, you wouldn't do it anymore. I mean, the fact that they keep abusing people means they are not really sorry. They don't have a repentant heart. Right? It just keeps moving. Well, really? Like, requirement for forgiveness from God is that you don't do it anymore? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You have been taught that the Bible commands you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to God's judgment. 
And we all agree, well, murder is such a horrible sin. Abusing kids is such a horrible sin. God's God's judgment. And they should go to hell or whatever. But I tell you that anyone who gets angry with another person will be subject to God's judgment. Again, anyone who says to anyone, you fool in anger will be in danger of the fires of hell. So Jesus here equates murder with getting angry. And, And it's just as big of a sin. He doesn't allow this ranking of sins where murder or abuse is terrible, but getting angry, it's, it's okay. No. Now, how many of you have gotten angry? And how many of you have like yelled out something that you regretted? And then you told yourself, I will never do it again, and you did it again. Right? And, and do you have any confidence that you, want, you will stop? From here on out, any of you have any confidence that, well, at least from now on, I won't get angry and yell? Any of you? Well, we are all in danger of fire of hell then, right? How does this work? You can't, you can't say, well, if you just stop, then you will. Well, none of us can stop, right? None of us can stop. There is no differentiation here. None of this works. It's all muddled thinking. It's all folklore. It's like convenient belief that allows Christians to draw boundaries on who's in and who's out. What's, what's, what's unacceptable sin and what's acceptable sin. Like LGBTQ is unacceptable sin. Getting angry, oh, of course, everybody does. You know, and it keeps changing too. Have you noticed? Like divorce, 50 years ago, it was like unacceptable sin. It was like, you go to hell. It's, you know, but now it's pretty much okay. And, and like that keeps happening. Have you noticed that all these sins like just keeps changing? What's acceptable? Culture changes and mindset changes. And we just have these convenient ways of just forgetting and just going off. It, it just allows, it's just self-satisfying excuse that allows Christians to have a clean bill of conscience while justifying horrible practices like crusades or slavery. Yeah, slavery is okay, but divorce is not or LGBTQ is not. How is that? that? It's crazy, right? Did you know that survey after survey says when you hear the word Christian, what do you think? The number one answer is hypocrisy. (laughs) Number two answer is judgmental. Do you see why that would be? It's because we just believe this faulty theory and allowed ourselves this self-convenient way out. Jesus said we are to be known for unconditional love. We're not to be known for hypocrisy and judgmental. <laughs> Those are two opposite things. Unconditional love, judgmental hypocrisy. That, that was the mark of Jesus' enemies, Pharisees. So now today, Christians are known for marks that mark enemies of Jesus. Shouldn't we be very alarmed about that? There's something profoundly wrong with this picture. It's all 
It's all topsy-turvy wrong. We must understand atonement theory is just a theory. And these theories come and go. God stands forever, but these theories come and go. They seem to have about a thousand years run time, you know? Like the first one, you know, they had about a thousand years and then it got replaced. And I think this one, it's had its run. <laughs> it's been about a thousand years and it's starting to come to an end. It's like a battery life runs out or something. It's like spoiled milk. It's, it's come to the expiration date. <laughs> it's starting to come to an end. We are starting to understand the limits of this theory. There are other ways to understand and celebrate how Jesus takes away the sin of the world. How? Well, first off, it's sin of the world. It's not just individual sins. It's sin of the world. The whole world is engaged in this sin. And instead of just speculating, I, I prefer always to look to the Bible rather than coming up with just theories. And I believe that the Bible describes the sin of the world or what causes all the sins or what, what the whole world is engaged in. I believe the Bible describes that in Genesis 3 in what most people understand it as what describes the fall of humanity. This is such an important chapter, Genesis 3. It's worth reading again and again because if Bible were a murder mystery, Genesis 3 is the murder. You know what I'm saying? It's what sets up everything that comes after. It's the, it's the, it's the genesis of the whole problem, right? You know what I'm saying? So Genesis 3 is the root of all sin, all problems, original sin, fall of humanity. You know the story. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit. And people like painted like an apple, you know. Apple is not the root of all problems on earth. Okay? <laughs> apple is a pretty good fruit. I like it. It's not a biting apple. Come on. Have you ever wondered why the, the knowledge of good and evil is such a big problem? I mean, that, you should really think about that because you think knowing and differentiating between good and evil, good and bad, is a good thing. It's what churches should and do measure in, right? It's all about what's good, what's bad, do this, don't do that. It's evil, it's good. Isn't that what churches are supposed to like really measure on? So why does the Bible say that is the root of all sin and problems on earth and brought hell? problem it even cuts out mice you know <laughs> right I mean that you really should think that through that's an enormously I think this mic itself is putting out a battery like you know it doesn't have a thousand year run time <laughs> anyway right so I prefer to look at the Bible 
And the Bible tells you exactly what it is by telling you what the fruit or the result of taking this tree, uh, fruit of this tree is. And that is, and the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Before this, they were happy with who they are. They could look at themselves naked, transparent. They could look at all their faults and good things, and it was all good. There were no judgments, insecurities, inadequate problems. They were happy with who they are. How many of you are happy with who you are? In every way. Like you look at yourself, you examine all your actions and behaviors, and you go, I am happy with who I am. Not in an arrogant, psychopathic, narcissistic way. Because narcissism is, is, again, about judging. Just unconditionally accepting. Yeah, I have problems. Being able to acknowledge you have problems. I have flaws. I have all these problems. But still, I am accepted in the love of God. And if God loves me, I love myself too. Do you know what I'm saying? That's not narcissism. Narcissism says I have no flaw. This is about seeing all your flaws straight on and, and, all, and still being happy because God is happy with me. I reserve judgment to God. God is the only judge in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? And so you are in happiness. You are in peace. How many of you could say that? I like to be there, but I haven't been I haven't been able to get there. But that's the goal. To rest in the love of God. Instead, Adam and Eve, once they took up this fruit, they feel compelled to cover up. You you see the flaw in you? And you cannot accept it. it. It is just unacceptable. You have to have a covering. You have to. You are compelled to either lie about it, deny you have it, or you cover it up with something else like success or beauty or being rich or being a good guy. You know, you say to yourself things like, I'm a decent person. I cry at Lifetime movies. You know? I have a good heart. I'm okay. Do you know what I'm saying? You, you, you have these excuses in order to cover up what you cannot accept about yourself. And that drives all sin in this world. Every sin comes from this. Greed comes from this. Pride comes from this. Envy comes from this. Lust comes from this. Everything comes from this. This absolute need to have covering. The inability to accept. Would you, wouldn't you agree? It's so sad. This is the saddest passage in the Bible, in my opinion. The weaponized judging. This is why the cross undoes the fall by declaring, You are enough. You are the beloved. You are completely welcomed and embraced 
in the love of God unconditionally because of the cross. This is what makes the cross so central. We no longer need any covering. Amen. This is the good news. This is the gospel of our faith. Does that strike you as good news? It's good news. There is nothing to like, I, I mean, it's the Christian faith becomes consistent. It becomes self-contained. Everything lines up. It's it just, if you really believed yourself and others to be worth the life of God incarnate, you wouldn't go around abusing or harming them. Right? So this is salvation by faith. You believe this, the kingdom of God opens up. And if you mess up, you may make a mistake, you harm yourself or others, you commit yourself to move towards loving yourself and others. That is Christian faith. It, it just there's nothing. This is the greatest commandment. It all lines up. Agreed? There are so many other things I could talk about this. There are at least three major other ways that the cross unders the fall, but I am completely running out of time. So, too many jokes along the way. So I'm going to have to cut out some major parts, but again, we can rest secure in the solid rock of faith. When you sing all these old hymns and all these Christian hymns and all this, rethink from the penal substitution theory to unconditional love that the cross represents. It is the tree of life that stands against the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tree of judging. Tree of justice. Tree that demands this kind of penalty and all this stuff versus God who says, no, you are beloved as you are. You are worth the life of God incarnate. Believe this and treat everyone in the same way. This is faith. Amen? This is why we celebrate Advent. It's such a good thing. Hallelujah.